Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I believe that losing a child is the worst thing that can happen to a parent who loves a child, who loves their children contemplating that is the next worst thing and often when you know where, where it's accidental um, you, you don't have the contemplation but I did remark to his doctor at one point that to lose a child is the worst thing um, but to have to contemplate it over and over again every day for two years dot 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 I'm your host, Natalie Drenovac, and this is The Modern Women, a show that seeks to share the stories and experiences of women that may be out of our line of sight. This week's guest is the social innovator, global changemaker, tech entrepreneur, and champion for human-centered solutions to complex social problems, Megan Gilmore. In 2010, after a 25-year career in government, publishing, and international aid and development, Megan's path took an abrupt turn when her son, Darcy, was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. It proved to be a terrifying and transformative experience. Megan's inspirational and unconventional journey is powerfully motivating. Her big-picture perspective and ability to cause lasting social change at scale through the power of human connection and innovation is shifting people from passive observers to engaged changemakers. Megan is also a Churchill Fellow, a keynote and TEDx speaker, and an expert on raising funding for large and dynamic innovation projects. Most recently, Megan won the ACT Australian of the Year Award and is the 2019 ACT winner of the Telstra Business Women's Awards in the for-purpose and not-for-profit category. Megan, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me, Nat. Let's kick off with the rapid fire. What's your perfect end of week drink? In summer, it's a G&T, gin and tonic. Uh, in winter, it's probably red wine. What's a life skill you wish was taught in school? Public speaking. Mm. What's the most common assumption people make about you and it's so wrong? That I'm hard. Who is a female role model for you and why? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And why is that? Because she... She entered a a very difficult space, and that's to get to the Supreme Court yeah. in the U.S. And she changed she changed what it was to be a woman in that space, but also um, what she the legislation that she created mm. um, that served women is well, profound. When I saw on the basis of sex, and then I just became down a real funnel hole, obsessed with her for about a month. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, she's amazing. She's absolutely incredible. So we're going to dive straight in because one of the things I find most captivating about you is your lived experience and what you went through with respect to your son, Darcy, and how that has transformed your life and changed your direction with everything. So from what I understand, and please correct me if at any part I'm incorrect, uh, Darcy got three rare blood disorders and then he was fast-tracked into a bone marrow transplant, which a treatment that kills if it doesn't cure. So basically it was a horrible diagnosis and not so good prognosis, but what I'm really interested to know is what were Darcy's struggles that you saw other than medical? Yeah, um, thank you for asking that question because um, most in those cases we're most uh, focused on saving the life. Um, what I noticed through that experience was that, and I put it this way, we have to save hearts and minds as well. You can't just save a body. So his experience through that was as a 10-year-old, uh, 10 and 11-year-old, and really, he was forced to have that medical treatment. He wasn't agreeing to being hurt, which is what happened. Yes, it was to save his life, and that's absolutely the right thing. But he um, he was prepared to go through all of that. I don't think he quite understood what that was about. Um, but what he kept telling us was that he missed his friends, he missed school, he missed his normal life. And really, it was the treachery of that whole medical trauma, along with being taken out of your life as a kid. So, you know, it went from, you can't run, you can't swim, you can't be at school. Now we're going to put you in hospital. Um, now you're going to be in hospital for 14 months straight. And while you're there, all these terrible procedures are going to happen that frighten you. Um, and through, throughout that trauma... You're also, he was also facing the loneliness of, of being isolated from his own life and from people he cared about and a community that he cared about, which was his school. Yeah. I was actually, as I said to you earlier, I was so interested to know what you learnt from watching Darcy's isolation and struggle and how, as adults, I feel like a lot of people, especially going through that now, which leads to these high rates of anxiety and all of the rest of it, but what is it that you saw in that that you think adults are ignoring? So do you mean um, what we don't understand about children or? Yeah, like, well, no, just more about, you know, Darcy went through such a horrible experience and then he was by himself, which made him miss school, which was, of course, how it led you into creating Missing School. But it made me think, hmm, do we not acknowledge um, isolation and loneliness? And, like as adults, we kind of just shrug it off. We're meant to deal with it. Whereas as an adult, as a as a mother, you got to observe it in your child. I wondered if there was a correlation in what you saw that and then what you see now in other humans. Yeah. So what I saw, probably because your heart is absolutely softened to it because it's your child, is what is essentially human. And that is we are meant to be connected to things that are meaningful to us, mm. whether it's people or environments or our work in the world, which we're always students of life. So if you can't do things that are meaningful to you and things are hurting you, that's not a life. Mm. That's not living. And I think what Darcy's journey showed me because it was so life and death is – you can save a life as in, or sorry, you can save a body, mm. but you might not be saving a life. And that's the thing that got me. Why, why is he going through all of this if he can't live a life 
of wellness and happiness after it because he's so traumatized and disconnected from his own life and world. So that's probably the, that was the main lesson for me. Mm. And, um, I think it came to me because I was his mother. I, I had to feel and try to feel what he was feeling to try and help him and do the best for him in that situation. Uh, I've personally never lost someone really, really close to me outside of like a grandparent. Um, but I'm wondering how does it, how does your mind evolve from that moment when you find out that you might lose your son? I believe that losing a child is the worst thing that can happen to a parent who loves a child, who loves their children. Contemplating that is the next worst thing. And often when, you know, where, where it's accidental, um, you, you don't have the contemplation. But I did remark to his doctor at one point that to lose a child is the worst thing. Um, but to have to contemplate it over and over again every day for two years dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And he just looked at me and said, because he has, he has children too, um, he said, the worst. So, yeah. It's kind of that thing now that, well, just with everything, the moment you love someone is also then the fear of the moment of losing them. It is. What I can add to that, though, is um, we, we don't get to choose everything that happens to us, but across that time, I think... I got to understand the profound depth and extent of love yeah. because I was in a relationship with the, the potential loss. And so it's kind of out there on the frontier of, of that human experience of love because you realise when you're taken out of the everyday and, and you know, we often take that for granted – but when it becomes so life and death, you realize like the, the exquisite love that you feel and the opportunity to feel that for someone in the world, um, it, it transformed me. Yeah. Yeah. That leads me into, I find that in these types of horrible situations, people generally sink or swim. You know, i.e. not everyone survives and comes out on top like yourself after something like that. And that's completely okay. There's no judgment I'm placing upon any mother or person who's gone through something and hasn't. But I feel my perception is that you have come out on top and you share in your TEDx talk, finding that moment your hopes and dreams could be derailed only to discover that it raises you to your finest hour. How is it that you came out on top and you didn't give up on those days when you most wanted to? Well, in the journey itself, and I heard a lot of people say to me, I don't know how you're doing it. Please, if you ever are asked to support someone in those situations... Don't say that to them because the answer is I don't have a choice and if you were in this situation and you love someone, you'd find a way to do it. So the first thing across that situation was how am I going to save my son's life and if I can't, how am I going to make every single day count for him and give him the best in that moment? So, And I told both my children at that time, we don't get to choose everything that happens to us but we do get to choose how we deal with it. And I think I realised early on that I had to be their mother. They couldn't lose a mother as well as their trust in life. And so that's what I, I did my job. So that was that part of it. Coming out of it, fortunately, with my son, um, 
uh, I how far have I risen out of that? I think I've risen as far out of out of it as the depths of the despair that I was in when I was in it. Um, and that's probably, I guess what I'm saying there is I experienced a moral injury in that environment and that was, you know, we're doing this to these kids to save their life. We're doing it for them but also to them and how can we let their education and their connection to their friends and peers and their community go and not be taken care of? Aren't we trying to save them to go back to school? Aren't we trying to save them to have a productive life as a human? And to watch that happen and to find this diabolically difficult situation with schools not being able to respond to that and me from my work experience realising this was happening everywhere, wasn't just happening to me, that was a moral injury for me, meaning that when I came out of it, I couldn't not do something about it because I wouldn't have been able to live with myself. But do you, did you meet people along the way who, I mean, of course, there are going to be people on the way who don't have that resolve. Like, is there something about you that, you, that made you that way? Yes, <laughs> I, I think I say this in the TED talk too. Um, I think it was my combination of work experience, life experience, my upbringing, my worldview, whatever it is about me that, that gives me drive and resilience, I guess, or, you know, just stubbornness. There's a fair bit of that tied in there. Um, that... All of those things fueled me along, but I think really, if I'm telling the truth, um, I could not have lived with myself knowing what I knew about that situation yeah. from all of those things and not actually doing something about it. So it took me a lot of years to even explain that to myself, why I couldn't give up. And why I couldn't give up was, I know something and how can I walk around the world knowing that? and not do something about it when I know I have the skills to do it. Yeah. And, and that was my healing of myself, um, my saving of myself after it. So you asked, you know, what, what happened there? I would have stayed in the dark hole. Oh, and if you hadn't have done something? Yeah. Yep. I, I, so this missing school and the work of missing school has actually helped me to heal from what I experienced in that journey. Ah, which is separate to what Darcy experienced. Right. And I think that's something that is so important to touch on because I find often if someone's gone through trauma, you forget that other people alongside them are also going through trauma, but they're trying not to also take the limelight, for lack of a better term, away from the person truly experiencing the harrowing pain. Yeah. So in that case, you mean Darcy and... Yeah, as in like you obviously as a mother being terrified for your son every day but the the limelight is on Darcy's sick let's get Darcy better which I'm sure every parent who has a child or every partner who is thinking about having a child or anyone listening to this is thinking wow like how would I feel if that person who I love the most was going through this what would I be going through and because you never want to take it away from them and be like it's all about me because it's not but you have an experience clearly well yeah I mean at that time when Darcy was still sick 
really this all came out of the, ha- the, re- the way that I discovered this problem and the way I discovered my relationship with the problem. Um, and I mean that, you know, kids don't keep their education and social connection through this, was that I could see Darcy giving up. Oh, really? And he was opting out because why Why would he keep having, you know, he was just getting worse health-wise. Yeah. Um, he was in a very, very compromised situation. He was institutionalised. He lived in hospital. Um, he Physically, he was so compromised. And what was that all for if the life he loved was gone? Yeah. So I truly believe in, in the power of hope. And so I thought, what can I do? I have to show this kid he's going to survive. How would I do that? Well, I have to tell him I've got to get him back to school because that's a kid's job, yeah. right? It's your, that's, that's, you think about it, your age, what, 10? You've spent half your life at school. You can't probably remember before that. Yeah. So that's your world. And should we just say your world doesn't matter anymore? Well, I guess that's kind of like as adults we're meant to have a purpose to our lives and at the time that that is what his purpose was. Yeah, that's and, and school and education is actually about human development. It's more, than, it's more than numeracy and literacy. You're learning how to be a human. You're learning how to navigate difficult territory in the playground. You're learning about how to interact with adults and power you're learning there's so many things you're learning there's so many nuances now that you bring it up that I'm like oh yeah that's true I remember that Um, what do they say the playground's the toughest gig gig on earth Um, well I think I can I can share that from my experience that I find that you can tell a lot about a person by the experience they had in school Mm mm-hmm um, which is why I, I don't know who it was. Someone said, if I ever found out, if you ever find out your child's being bullied, you need to get them out of there ASAP because of the developmental things that can occur later on in life For because sure. of that. Um, you are. Well, I'm going to definitely link up your TEDx talk. I want everyone to look up Missing Schools because what you're doing is, I think, remarkable. And Thank I had you. no idea about it. Um, that's what I love about this mm-hmm. research. Um, but on the flip side, uh, I know we were talking about, I guess, the gendered issues that sometimes women face and the idea that you go from taking care of your child to then taking care of you know, your parents. And so do you think that that is most common that women are taking care of um, the children and the parents later at stages? Like, is that a gendered thing or is it perhaps just because, you know, women are more often the ones who aren't working full time? That's, that's a tough one to answer. And I, you know, I suppose we could look at a whole lot of things there. We could look at biological differences. Um, with, Do you think women are more maternal? Um, I would say, I would say generalising. Yes, yeah. not in all cases, but, you know, there might be some biological markers for that different biochemistry, you know, yeah. um, and, and I'm not competent enough or knowledgeable enough to go into the detail of that. But, you know, whether, where, wherever that starts, if it does start biologically, um, I mean, we, we have the biological, closer biological relationship to the development of a child and um you know the child grows within us in those in those situations where that can that can happen and then we if we're breastfeeding we have that relationship 
So, you know, I think if it starts there, then that's that. But there's definitely a socialised aspect of um, caring that's reinforced. In terms of we're taught about how to be more... Well, I think there's definitely a social expectation. Yeah. And then... um, Do you think that men put that on us or other women or... I think it's all of it. I think social constructs and cultural constructs are upheld by everyone. So when you've worked around the world, do you see that happening everywhere in the same way? Yes, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. Um, And then, you know, in some cultures there's more choice around it and women will still make the choice to be the primary carer. Would you say Australia is one of those? I don't know. I don't know enough about the – I don't know enough on the stats of that, but if I'm commenting from an observational point of view, I would say that still happens more in Australia as well. Yeah. And, but I do think that um, the the balance of work in the home definitely affects women's opportunities yeah. or the imbalance. <laughs> well, I wanted to get your perspective on that work-life balance because it does seem to be framed in a way that there's this objective tipping point that anyone who's working, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week doesn't have a work-life balance. And I know you work a lot. Mm-hmm. So do you think that there are preconceived ideas or expectations that if you're ambitious, you want to build a company or a career and a family and have a relationship that a work-life balance means like that's completely the same for everyone or that there's a another objective measure? So are you saying or are you asking whether um, whether work-life balance is a good thing or – Well, I don't think that there is a true – I don't think there's a true understanding of what work-life balance is. I think well, it's Well, I don't really, believe in it. Yeah, okay. Full stop. Okay. I mean, let's let's just go back to one thing now – um, let's when we look at work-life balance, if we're going to dichotomize it so bluntly, which I don't kind of I don't I don't get that. Where are we acknowledging the economic value of unpaid work in the home, mostly by women? I mean, so in terms of putting like a an hourly rate on what a on what a mother does. Yeah, yeah, right. So unless that unless that is being actually counted and it's not as far as I can see, I know there's some work going on on that, then what, what are we using as the balancer? Are we, are we talking about paid work, work-life balance for paid work and, and unpaid work? I mean, do you know what I mean? You can't actually – it's pretty hard to cut it because if you're coming home from a paid job, then you're doing another six to eight hours of yeah. free work in the home – but then you get your weekends off. What, is that what kind of world do you think we'd live in if, like, uh, let's call it mothers at home, um, actually were paid for the work that they did? Like, do you feel like we would have a bit more of an equal society in terms of just respect and understanding? I think because one big measurement in society is money and economics. We mainly operate in a capitalist sort of model, so. If, if it was factored and counted or was actually paid, I think it would make a lot of difference actually. Yeah. Um, but the whole work-life balance thing is really interesting for me because I've, um, I'm, I was married once before this marriage that I'm in and I did most of the domestic and, you know, 
primary care at work for our children in that situation. In this situation, I don't. And what I can say with absolute clarity and conviction is that I would not have been able to do what I have done um, in a public work life way. In if, terms of what you're doing now, yeah, career-wise? Yeah. yeah. If I, you know, you talked about the, the number of hours I work. I could not work those hours on, you know, the work of missing school or my businesses if I didn't have a partner who shoulders at least half but probably more now, if I'm being honest, of the domestic world, you know. I, I was, couldn't have. I was really curious about that and if you're happy to share, how did you get to that point? I know it seems simple and I know a really simple answer is you ask for it, but I feel like that doesn't happen a lot in terms of if we're just looking at heterosexual couples. It doesn't happen a lot. And what we notice as a couple is that my husband, let me call him Hugh because that's his name, Hugh will get a lot of praise as in Hugh's amazing, Hugh cooks so beautifully, Hugh does all the shopping, he's incredible. If I was doing all that, no one would be mentioning it. That would be your job and expectations. Yeah, so it's – and don't get me wrong, I think he is amazing. Um, I think he's amazing because – his point of view on that is that's just what you do. He was raised um, with two sisters and the way he puts it is if the cooking was to be done and you were there, you did it. If the wood chopping was to be done and you were there, you did it. His sisters can drive trucks. They can chop wood. They can bake sponges. So can he. Do you know what I mean? So it's all just. So did you never have to really communicate about like, hey, this is what I expect of you. He just more saw you as his equal. Yeah, well, he just, the washing had to be done so he'd put it on. He's a food snob, so he loves to do the grocery shopping and go to the fresh food markets. And yeah. Do you know what I mean? So maybe that's also – I mean, he likes – he enjoys good food, so he likes to cook it as well. And I like cooking too, but I don't like – I didn't like cooking under pressure mm. and I don't like grocery shopping. So – I also hate those things. Yeah, I know. Um, but you've got to do it, right, if we're going to, if we're going to eat and we're not yeah. eating out. So um, it – that, though, has made a massive difference to my capacity to leverage opportunities that come to me or that I create. Yeah. I really want to make this point because this is not about me saying, you know, have a great man standing behind me. That is not my message here. It's about um, we're not going to – women are not going to be able to really leverage their potential and capacity if, if our home lives – if, if the unpaid work in the home and around the primary care of children, which is super important, is balanced because there's only so many waking hours in the day. It's so how would you navigate that situation if, if Hugh wasn't so agreeable um, and happy to like adjust as he sounds like and that you have friendships, I'm sure, where it's not balanced? Like, do you ever offer advice or what do you say to women who are challenged in that kind of environment where they're like, hey, I would love that, but, you know, Jeff is certainly not on board? Well, the first thing I say is get a cleaner because that's really the only – do you know what I mean? Like, apart from sort of interfering in the social dynamics of someone's relationship, which we don't tend to do even if we're super close to people, Mm. there's sort of a line there, isn't there? It's just more about the pragmatic aspects of it. And so often when I have said that, 
Um, and I, I had, I had a cleaner, f- you know, since my kids were really little because I decided I worked almost full time and I wanted to play with them and be with them when I wasn't working. And if I was spending most of that time cleaning, I'm not going to be able to do that. So it made sense to me to, you know, take a slab of that money off and put it to that. That kind of created more um, equilibrium for me. And so it's pragmatic things, I guess. And I have have had women say back to me, oh, but my husband won't agree to that. And then my answer is, well, then start divvying up the tasks and he'll agree really quickly to that because, you know, (laughs) it's just that simple really, isn't it? You know, of course you're not going to agree if you don't have the burden. Yeah, if you've never experienced having to do it. Yeah. It's funny It's like like you get on the vacuum cleaner and, you know, I'll unpack the dishwasher. Do you think society is changing on that as a general rule for women though? Like have you seen differences in generations as you've gotten older? Because, I mean, I only really have the perspective that I have on, you know, let's call it the last seven years perhaps. Yeah, well, I was talking to someone about this the other day and um, hearing stories of, say, my grandparents and my answer to that was um, if you had five kids and you were hand-washing your clothes and then you did your ironing once a week and you had a wood stove that you cooked on and all of those things, like let's call it take away the mod cons, well, your whole day and into the night was working at home. So how would you go out to work, you know? Yeah. So I suppose we're saying the same thing. Um, is it changing? I don't think society can change that. I, I think it can only change home by home, yeah. relationship by relationship. So do you think it would be better that in those relationships where people, it, they have seen the change like yourself, it is good to share what you are doing that's different? Like, do you think that creating that conversation will actually make people go home and create the conversation for themselves? I think so. I Well, I only know from my little microcosm, mm. um, I've had lots of people say to me they'd like, you know, their daughter to find a man like you. <laughs> you know, like what they're meaning is they can see the value in that um, mm. and they'd like that either if they're single they'd like that type of thing for themselves or yeah. you know that's that's something that they see as positive so um i don't know what i don't know what the men you know in my my um wider relationships think of what, what do any of you's friends ever make any commentary on it no i don't i don't think so and and his family don't either because that's what they grew up with yeah but i've also learned to drop the guilt for myself around that and I think I've gotten much better at it over the last year when you say drop the guilt do you mean well, about of how much me you not work? doing it and me not playing more of that role and then I thought but this is what I'm doing over here and so it was a matter of honoring what I am doing and what I am good at and dropping the idea that I can be good at all these other things as well you know so have you been criticized for the passion and time you spend on your work? Probably. Oh, just not to your face? <laughs> um, well, I guess people don't. They, they would more say you're working too hard. I often get told I'm working too hard. You know, I've never heard a man really be told that in a way that's not also a pat on the back. Yeah, yeah. I, know, there are definitely differences with the way women and men are spoken to about things or what yeah. they're congratulated on or not. Yeah, yeah. and it's like we're, we want to live in an environment where women have this – 
um, belief about themselves that they can and go on to achieve. And yet at the same time, you're somewhat critiqued if you're not ticking all the perfect boxes of being a perfect partner, a perfect relationship, keeping things spicy, whilst also making sure the house is tidy. I know, right? You know, (laughs) and it's just, and all men are like, oh, good on you. You're doing so well. That's wonderful. Oh, look, you picked up the groceries. Good on you. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, Hugh probably is is only friends with people who are um, probably not likely to to criticise him for doing those things. So yeah, well, you know, we associate we tend to associate more with people who are like minded. So um, sometimes that's a little bit of a a cushioning, really, isn't it, yeah. of what might go on. Yeah, in other well, homes. And I other certainly places. find that there are times I'm like, "Oh, this is how it is," and then I actually think, "No, this is the echo chamber I uh-huh. live in, and this is how it is for us." That's right. Um, and I think sometimes it's really good to have a bit of a perspective on actually, this is my world. It's not everyone's world, so I should have empathy towards those who may not have such. Yeah, and keep our position. eyes open and wonder. Like, yeah, because look around totally because otherwise it is so easy to just place judgment on other people. Yeah, right. And I think it's. Um, you know, the counter argument to that is when we do achieve some success by some external standards or, you know, judgments of, of the wider world, what is often not seen is we not we didn't do that on our own. Mm. We there were a lot of people involved in that production, you know. So what might, might not be showing up. What's your opinion on the term self made then? A fallacy? Yeah. I mean, most people want to, um, you know, I've done this on my own, but when I failed, it was everyone else, you know, it was other people caused that. So it's like, you know, socialising the failures and privatising the wins, um, you know, that sort of, um, and that, that phrase has come from Hugh as well. So, you know, it's it's just important to, and I don't. I mean, there's people close around that have supported us, yeah. But there are also people who just come in and out who have been incredibly catalytic in 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 getting you to your next place, your next space. And you know, if you trace that back, you'll you'll find every one of them in your story. And it might have been a day, a moment, an hour, but that person did one thing. That led to a oh, whole you can always of connect things. the thread. Yeah, yeah, and it's important to. I have to reflect on that too because when you're at the coal face, chipping away every day for you know twelve, your twelve hours or whatever, it's easy to think it's just you, you know. <laughs> um, but I think that that also comes to. There are some people who want it to be all about them and they need that for their ego, for their self worth, or whatever it is. And then there are others who are like. It wasn't just me that got me here. It was, you know, the whole team, et cetera. So I think that's more of a characteristic thing I personally find. Yeah. 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 Um, piggybacking, though, off of what you were sharing about how women are spoken to differently versus men, um, a lot of my listeners have actually been giving me the feedback that there are companies out there that project a view that they are, you know, pro-equality, progressive, but when you're working there, it's just total bullshit. Um, and knowing how damaging and detrimental an unequal workplace can be for women's careers and mental well-being, um, how do we get better at seeing through the bullshit of the boys' clubs, sexism, and the old-school mentality around mothers and especially the quote-unquote maternity risk? <laughs> yeah. Well, prior to this, you know, before we, we jumped on this call, we were talking about what is it that I do and what it, what's different about it. I think I look at things – I'm a systems thinker. 
So to answer your question, it's everything from the t- from the top down. So I mean everything from legislation through to principles of law, um, policy, standards and regulations and measurements, guidelines in practice, processes and procedures. Unless you have all of those met through the whole sort of structure of a governance of an issue, so in this case we're talking about workplace, mm. um, you can get this sort of well-intentioned but superficial stuff which is you know often values but they're not they're not actually baked in they're not they're not lived by the company well i feel that's happening a lot these days like I yeah feel because all... it's a marketing exercise let's write these values down they sound really good and everyone gets a bit excited about them but they don't happen in practice because they're not articulated and baked into to the operation um so they can't be operationalized and they can't be measured and if you're not measuring things hmm you can't see where you're failing. So would you say that we need more women in writing the legislation for that first step to then have it keep teetering down? Well, absolutely. The people who are most affected by the problem need to be the people who are um, innately embedded in um, developing the solution. Otherwise, it's developed for you without any understanding. Mm. So um, somebody who I've been working with recently who who is, you know, operating in a sort of cultural change process around gendered issues. I won't mention the industry, but um, what they what they are recognising is that if there aren't creches at workplaces or work sites, then women are necessarily going to be the people who are left out. What's a creche? Cause I... A creche. So um, like a, a playroom for children. Oh, right. Or a, okay. Or Sorry. A, gotcha. You know, it could it it could it could be you know it's it's a where you you can bring children and they're cared for while yeah. while you participate in the work gotcha so i mean the, you look at these things and you say well if one of the main impediments is that women of a certain age group are primarily caring for their children but might even be by primarily by choice however that doesn't mean that they're not able to do meaningful work or that they still don't have their experience to put forward in their workplaces. So if our work environments recognise the root causes of those exclusions, then you know you, you come up with solutions that address the root problem. You can transform. That's living values. Yeah. Because it's recognising the true barriers but see, I just feel like so many things that women are coming up against now as change is occurring still comes back to men have to start to also be on board to make the change. Yes. So how do, how do you almost incentivize men to get with the picture? Well, it's not incentivization. It's all of those things that I said right from the top to the bottom. But it's what a, would make a man change something that benefits him? Well, where there's policy and it's measured and there's guidelines and there's certain practices that have to take place in that organisation. So do you think in terms of there should be – when you say guidelines and um, measurements like percentages, like there should be a certain percentage, percentile of women? Are we talking about um, – well, it, it just depends. It depends what we're talking about. If we're talking about um, the numbers of, of women put forward for roles versus men and those sorts of things, I mean those are well-known um, ways and measurements to – to start to change culture. Yeah. Um, my my observation about sy- complex systems change for wicked problems is that you have to 
use you have to use catalytic mechanisms for them and this comes out of Jim Collins's work you know you have to find those things that trigger change in the environment in measurable ways that change people's behavior and I think this is what we're talking about we're talking about behavioral change versus a value listed you know on a website yeah it sounds really pretty yeah so it's it's what do you need to do to affect behavioral change for everybody and you know it's some of those things are I mean what was the case in in Iceland I don't know when it was was it the 60s where women across the country went on strike did they Yes, look it up. It shut the country down. <laughs> oh, is that why they have better benefits for women? Well, that's why there's just just it it was catalytic. That inciting incident was the beginning of um it was catalytic, you know. It, yeah. it Let's just do that. That's what this is going to be, Megan. We're going <laughs> to just prompt an actual strike for women across the country. I know. Could you imagine, imagine how though? disenfranchised they must have been to actually get together and yeah. say, right? How do but we I mean, like, that's this? actually a crazy idea. How would you even get to that point where, like, the, all women just are like, actually, we're going to put a stop to this and we're done? Yeah, like, I mean, were they on the phone? Like, what? Were, yeah. how were they doing this? You know, think about the practicalities. Faxing each <laughs> exactly. other, writing letters. It's, it's Meeting it, at the grocery store and having a chat. Well, to be fair, it is actually, in a smaller capacity, it is what all the women in Hollywood have done. Uh-huh. You know, they all got together and it took a few to speak up and then now all of a sudden all the women will band together and be like, no, unless we're all getting this or unless there's this amount of people and it's working. Yep. And, you know, women's yep. voices are being recognised in a greater manner because it's costing the companies if not. Yeah, well, wicked problems are usually massively distributed so they're taking place in, in work units all across the world you know, right down to one person or two or three people. And so how do you be if, – if I raise an issue about, you know, such and such made an inappropriate comment or blah, 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 it's like, oh, well, you're just being difficult. Do you know what I mean? It could be yeah. happening to 40 women in that environment. But unless the 40 women talk about it and unless the 40 women are prepared to bring that forward, it just – these issues end up being widely distributed – with no organising principle to kind of, you know, trigger the change. So you, you have to use distributed solutions. Yeah. And I, yeah. Always, I always see, or at least I feel I see, though, that when women are wanting to create change, it's always described in such an emotional manner. By Whereas, women, do you mean? No, call it women. No, not, we're, not really other women. I mean men, the media. It's always described in this way that they're being hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bam. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, sorry. Well, I think like, let's, let's, let's be honest about this. Wherever, wherever there's been people in a situation of power or where life feels good for a certain group of people, they don't understand what the furor is about, right? They're just mm. like, what is this? Yeah. And it's like, well, what it is is it's not happening to you. Yeah. And so – I think this is no this is no different, right? It's like there's there's a whole sort of you know and it it's not all men. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's <laughs> you know, I'm using that term deliberately. But um if it's not happening to you, you don't understand that there's a problem 
And that's a human thing. Yeah. I got a great example given to me when I was relaying a story around I have two – it happened within two days of each other. Two white males um, who were in the who are in the acting industry, and they were like, you know, Nat, it's really quite tough right now. We're not even getting all the roles and all the rest of it that we previously had. And uh, and I was sharing that story with another person, and they go, the 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 key point here is they think that they were entitled to it in the first place, whereas they just were predisposed to getting that because of their privilege and what the media was requesting. And it made me rethink so many things around. Now when it's portrayed that we're taking from someone, was it ever theirs to begin with? Why? Where was it written that they were owning that space? Yeah, well, that's, that's a preconception that's bought. Yeah. Um, have a look at, and I hope I'm getting this right, hashtag our time. It's London, london.gov. Um, it's a social campaign around equality in work in in London and it is a phenomenal piece of video footage and I don't maybe I should describe it describe so it makes it. sense yeah so um London Underground I think whether you've been in a London London Underground or not you get the picture really 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 steep escalators leading out of the underground in some cases and so it's just a simple footage of some people getting off the tube, like they're getting off and they're heading for the, you know, to go up the escalator to go out. And there's a guy and he's sort of standing like almost like the traffic cop at the base of these. And so, that, you know, some men come out and he's like, over there, please, sir. And, you know, up he goes the escalator and over here a woman comes and is like, this is, this is the way that you go up the stairs. And then, you know, a couple more men come. Here you go, sir, up the escalators. And then more women come and it's like, this is where you go. And people are looking at each other. Even the men are looking like, well, this is weird, you know. So in other words, everyone's going, well, why are we going up the stairs? And why am I on this? Like no one actually understands what's going on. Oh, and then right. there's a woman comes with a pram and a baby in it. And he's like, this is the way that you go up the stairs. And then some other woman's trying to help her lift the pram. And as a viewer, you're like, what? Like, no, this but, can't happen. But it paints the picture of what is it happening. It paints the picture of what's happening. So clever. The other way I saw the explanation of those who are going through hardship is, uh, I think it was Trevor Noah. And he goes, I tried to describe it because he's, um, he's South African, he's black. And he was saying how, I think of it like a game of golf. You know, like the white man doesn't get any, uh, is it your par? Yeah, you know, when you, you're, you're um, what's the term? Everyone who plays golf is just thinking it. Um, a handicap. Yeah. He's like, that's it. He's like, you don't get any handicaps. He's like, where all these other people, they need the handicaps because you're already so far ahead of them. And I thought that is such a simple way, even though I totally botched yeah. it up just then, yeah, to yeah. describe actually what's going on that's to right. people. It's, and, it's, and it's incredulous and there's no one watching that man or woman who's saying yeah yeah the dudes should go on the escalator and the lady with the pram she should go up the stairs yeah she should slug it you know but but what that's doing is unmasking that issue and putting it in as such a simplified way um with a metaphor or an analogy or whatever and and people get it and i thought you know that's all you need a minute of that and you yeah, and if enough people see it, they're like, oh, that's what's going on. Yeah. You know, it's one of the things that excites me so much about this podcast because one of the initial reasons why I started it, which I know I shared with you, was I was so intrigued to know what was it to be a modern woman because 
although here we are making jokes about how women have all these extra strife, all this extra struggle. I mean, I'm excited by the fact that I'm a woman. Yeah. Like if you look at everything, like does it still excite you that you are a woman in this world? It excites me. And even when I was growing up, I'd have people say to me, women, this is girls. Um, It's so hard being a woman, you know, it'd be better to be born a man. And I still remember those conversations where I'd say, no, no, I don't want to be a boy or a man. I'm really, really happy to be a a woman. And um, that holds true to this day. I yeah, I love it. I just feel like women are so multifaceted and so interesting. And like, it's not to say that <laughs> hashtag not all men aren't, <laughs> but it just, there's something that still excites me as much as through all these conversations, I'm getting to this point where I'm like, huh, we seem to actually be a few steps behind on the social hierarchy. Uh-huh. And yeah, I mean, as I say, I think there's, there's individual work to be done on that and there's collective work to be done on that, um, but we're never going to enact change in our lives unless we take responsibility for what we can change yeah. and, and the way that we do that in our own lives with our own people. I'm really glad you actually said that because something I wanted to ask you was, are we doing a disservice by bundling women together as a whole homogenous entity when it comes to women's rights? As a social scientist, the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean that as a social scientist because – Again, and I, I was going to say this earlier, you and I, we're two white women, right, <laughs> speaking on behalf of Got a bit all of a women. tan on you, Yeah, well, Megan. I'm whiter than you. Yeah, but, a bit whiter you know, than me, a yeah. couple of steps but, forward. But, you know, we're, we're speaking on behalf of all women. That's the first problem, isn't it? Yeah. And it's within, something I've started to realise. Yeah, yeah, so there's, there's, you know, this. there are so many cross-sections here of um, issues. There's... There's cultural differences, there's age differences, there's, um, you know, differences in socioeconomic status, Um, there's ethnicity as as a differentiator, you know, shall we go on? There's just so many, um, you know, you know sexual choice there's all sorts of like how you identify what what gender what on the range of gender options where do you identify where do you fit and how fluid is that so I mean and and I guess a number of those things can change throughout throughout our lives as individuals too what do you feel about the right to change in terms of who you are I brought it up in my um, recent anonymous expectations one around if our expectations that we've set for ourselves are something and then should we have the right to change? Like what's your... Yes, absolutely. Um, more even than the, the right and we probably too, do have the right, but um, the, the capacity within ourselves to, to recognise how important that is for, for our own relationship to our environment and world. And I talked about this on a call the other day actually where I was saying that that could even be day-to-day in terms of what we agree to um, and the softening around um, the choices that we've made. I made that yesterday. Today I have more information and that's no longer where I want to go and being able to do that I think is the first really important thing. Um, But across our lifetime, gee, I hope we can do it because – if we can't be changed by what we learn, 
or changed by what we learn, then what's it all about? Yeah, what's the point of the growth? What's the point of the growth, yeah, if you can't apply it. And you know me, I'm all about implementation. <laughs> like we can't think this through either. And I know times in my life where I've thought when I'm this age or when this happens, then I'll feel that and that'll be like this. And and when you get there and if we've if we've listened to our wise forebears and women in our life before, our mothers, well, they kind of knew already, right? <laughs> it's like you but might no matter feel how, this way later. No matter how many times we're told that, we still always have an expectation of what it's going to be like when you hit quote unquote there. Yeah, we do. And then the art of it is to have the reflection point and the ability within ourselves to recognize that not that we were wrong, just that we didn't know and to be able to embrace the experience that we have there. And, and of course, the great opportunity in that, you know, capacity to change as well. So that, that opportunity sits right alongside the challenge, doesn't it? And we can go either way. Knowing that all women are really facing their own unique journeys and I find that I'm certainly told that there are some women in life who are like, they'll pull the rung from out underneath you because they had a you know a hard time along the way and knowing you that you were such an ambassador for helping women and really helping them to galvanize their mission and, and step into that potential. Uh, what is it that you've found most common when you have been helping variety of women through all the different work you do because like, you're someone yeah. who is like a, you are a barracker to help other is barracker that's a long term I'm using here <laughs> but like you're such you're so someone who is like if I can help you move forward I will be there not everyone feels that way like yeah well I think this comes back to the missing school thing and all the other things that I do the common thread amongst all of them is for me is potential if like my worst thing is is not to be able to reach into your your potential. So I transfer that onto everyone else too. Like, you know what I mean? And that's where that passion comes from. Um, quite often I want things for other people that they don't want for themselves because I can see that they have certain gifts and things. So um, why do I, you know, what is that thing for me about women is that, or, or that runs across it all is I – feel like and maybe this is just humans in general but I do work mostly with women is that we can't see what our gifts are and I don't mean that gifts in a flossy way it's like that you know this comes around um, my business model and, and a methodology a framework is like you know global insights for transforming society like society can be your own home ecosystem that's your society or your or your uh, community or your state your country the world we don't recognize these as gifts because we often experience them as things that are easy to do and so when I work with women and we go through the process of that discovery every single time the way that it presents is Oh, I just can't believe I didn't see that. It's almost like to the phrase, you know what I mean? And they're like, how did you do that? I didn't do anything. I just listened to you. You well, told I, me. You certainly <laughs> asked the right questions. Like 
low key in the background, Megan is actually a huge pinnacle reason for why I started this podcast. But I do find that you have a gift in asking the right kind of questions and you help people see through their bullshit, which I think is really important because people quite often want to lie to themselves. Well, we do. We're, we sit in so many illusions and maybe what we're not getting enough of in our life is somebody just sitting with us and saying, oh, tell me why that happened and what happened then and how did you feel about that? Those sessions for me are as valuable as they are to the person who communicates that value back to me. Um, why? Because it's a curiosity. It's an opportunity like we're doing today to actually sit and have a meaningful conversation and to cover it off into areas we often wouldn't go or that don't seem important to us. But when somebody else hears them, they are super interesting. And so that's, that's what that is for me. Um, have you always been comfortable with your vulnerability? I, I wouldn't say I've always been comfortable with it. I, I've always acknowledged it in myself. Okay. In terms of you could be it, and like your journaling or you just mean like just in that inner dialogue conversations yeah, that we all have. Yeah, inner dialogue, inner dialogue. So um, one of the questions you asked me at the beginning was in the rapid fire was, you know, what would often be said about me that I don't think is true mm. is that I'm hard. Um, I do tell hard truths. And, um, but the truth of it is I'm actually probably, I'm incredibly soft hearted. Oh yeah. And, and that might not come through to people, but part of what that is, is a reflection in the world. If you match that up with that empathy up with potential is I won't let you off the hook if I believe that there's something you have to give that's really important and my heart won't allow it. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. sometimes the way that comes out is it can be very edgy but it comes from a place of deep love. You know, but I actually find that the most, most often the people in my life who I think would have the same assumptions made about them are the most generous, loving, kind, caring. Mm. But just because they're not so – and I think it's more like, like as you're saying – in life, they're just not full of shit and they're not bullshit to other people. So then when they're just really uh, to the point, people are like, oh, you're hard or you're, you're bitter or, I mean, there's some horrible words that get thrown around, but mm. I, I completely agree with you there. And I would never, I would never have described you as hard knowing who you are, but I do love how you are someone who I feel always offer the truth, you, you know, your yeah. truth in a situation. Yeah. And it, it is just my truth. Um, where does that come from for me is... I have talked to a lot of people deeply. So that seems to be something that happens in my life. And I think I do spend a lot of time and, and I pay a lot of attention to how people might feel, even in terrible situations or where they might have done things we would call terrible. Because what I'm seeking in those conversations or with myself or others is why? What's happening there? What caused that? And I think when you create a data bank of that, what you realise is we're all capable of so such a range of behaviours, you know, and we can recognise 
in ourselves the fine line between um, something noble and not so good. And that I suppose that's a recognition of, of our vulnerability or humanity. Um, How do you think we could all get better at that day to day so we're not so judgmental and pointing the finger? I think it's always to ask why would they be doing that and, what... and to bring it back into ourselves though. Yeah. Why would I do that in that situation? It's the personalization of that and then, well, maybe it's because and then we start to get a curiosity around what, what caused that. Yeah. It's a bit – It's a bit. it can be hard because what I used to notice more, I think I'm getting better at it now, is that I could walk into a room, look at some people and my mood would change. I'd just drop down a few, you know, and I'd what start to mean? feel – What do you mean? Is well, that being judgmental or that's just no, like No, I'd just start to feel a little bit of emotional pain or something, you know, and then I had to realise, well, this is not really – like I'm, I'm seeing other people and thinking they might be going through something or whatever. Like I'm watching. Is that empathy? I think it is empathy. Do you think it's we all curiosity as well? Do you think we all have empathy, or do you think that some of us foster it better? I think I think we all have it, but some of us foster it. It's well, what we pay attention to grows, so. Mm. <laughs> If we don't care for it or it's uncomfortable, um, we tend not to do it. I tend to have done more things that are uncomfortable um, because I, I recognise, especially now, that if I'm in new territory, it's going to be uncomfortable. And if I'm having something that's a confrontational or uncomfortable discussion with someone it's going to be uncomfortable. So I just acknowledge that mm. and then use that that understanding to still try and keep move, move, moving forward with that person or that thing. It's not always pretty. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that used to happen for me when I was young is I used to wish I didn't feel things so intensely. And what I learned to tell myself and when other people who are deeply sensitive express that same thing to me, I tell them, is but then you wouldn't get to feel all of that exquisite experience either. You can't have one without the other. So would you forego that understanding, deep appreciation, sensory, um, you know, amazing sort of depth, would you forego that to avoid this discomfort? And no one said, yeah, I'd forego that, <laughs> you know. So this is how we love. We love deeply. We're going to feel deep pain. Well, the contrast allows you to know that there is a difference. I do find it funny that when people say to me, I don't like confrontation. Yes, that's always said. <laughs> yeah, I always think to myself, so does that mean you're not honest? Because I don't think confrontation is a bad thing. I think it's just two different people having varying points of view and I fucking hope I don't live in a world where everyone always has the same opinion oh, as me. Oh, that would be, be the worst thing. Yeah. But, but I think what people miss, though, is that we are always in confrontation with ourselves. And if we're not, get, if we're not getting comfortable with that... What do you mean by that? Well, throughout our whole day, if we're, if we're involved in reflection about things, if we're checking in with ourselves, we, we're going to be um, 
we're going to be confronting things we don't like about ourselves, stories, you know, challenges, choices. Those, if you look at them all, they're all conflict. We're in conflict where there's any friction. And I don't know about you, but my day has a lot of friction in it, you know. And so not always and not all the time, but, you know, I'm out there I'm out there doing things and I'm doing them rapidly. So that happens with ideas, with people, with things. And, you know, I'm having conversations with myself. Should I do this? Shouldn't I do that? I don't know how to do this. Give up. It's time to stop. You're too tired. No, push on. Otherwise, you'll disappoint people. You know, and like it's just all the crap. That's all conflict. So if we can't get comfortable with that in ourselves, I reckon that's where it's going to, where we're not good at it externally. So I'm pretty comfortable having all of those discussions with myself all day. Um, You know, and my kids will say when they're sitting with me, come back. Do you (laughs) find that your children are quite open and honest from watching that as an example in you? Yes, but they're they're quite different personalities, but yeah, I mean, and they definitely are with me, with, you know, and sometimes they'll tell you things later that they didn't tell you before and, you know, it's it's the times now to tell you and not then. Um, but, I mean, one of the things I do know about them is they're both empathetic and that's because I've externalised that to them as they were growing up. You know, well, how do you think that would feel? Why do you think they did that? Um, if you do that, what's going? You know, and sometimes I, sometimes I've reflected on that and thought, have I made them too open to pain? You know, <laughs> because, but again, um, they they've got to 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 feel and to care about people and to care about what happens to people. Yeah, I think we are definitely living in a world where fostering those attributes is a very important thing. Yeah, well, it's, you know, that's that comes back to the humanity of connection, which is at the centre of what we started with. Um, what's the opposite of isolation? Well, it's connection, I guess. I don't know. Um, as we head towards the back end of the interview, I really wanted to ask this question because it was given to me by one of my key listeners and I thought you'd be a really good person. And I think you kind of do this perhaps with Missing School. You might have a different answer. But as you get older, do you feel a deeper sense to leave this world better than you found it? How do you channel that feeling into fruition? The answer is yes. And I channel it into fruition by um, by checking, checking in with myself on everything that I do to ask myself is it is it creating something better or is it hurting people and again those the answers can be different in the moment but i certainly feel that if i if i had understood the extent of my potential and i'm not saying me personally i'm talking about me personally but i think this is true for everyone if i had understood what I could do when I was younger and I really just started this journey in my 40s, um, you know, the, the part that we've talked about. Um, Which is a key message that it's never too late <laughs> to start anything. Yeah, so I'm 50 now. So, I, you know, this was sort of early 40s when Darcy got sick and then 
it's really been actually the last two, three years where I really kind of flipped the lid off. But that's because I that's because I started to understand what this is about and how to do it, meaning how to reach into your potential, how to, you know, tear down the illusions that we think are holding us back and to realise the blind spots that are there. And so I know that feeling very well now. I'm like, I'm sitting in a blind spot here. You know, there's something I can't see that's preventing me from moving forward. What is it? And what I mean by that is that's not external, that's internal. And, um, you know, this is happening all the time now, but that's the conversation that I have with myself. So, again, it comes back to what, what your insights are that can create change in the world in a positive way. And I believe that we can all do that. And I believe that as a starting point from love, we, we all feel better through that. You know, it's even, even in tough situations in life, if we, if we can feel like we've made something more positive, you know, I think it's, it's kind of baked in it. Just because I feel like I want to clarify around the leaning into your potential because so many people listening will be like, I want to do that, I want to do that. So when you say you've really figured out, I guess, the equation for yourself, what does that look like for someone to implement? Because I've experienced it when you've done it to me. Yeah. (laughs) But in terms of if I was just self-reflecting, what would I do? The first thing is to understand – the first thing is implementation (laughs) – I don't know if you suspected I was going to say that. We, none of this stuff shows up, none of our sabotage shows up till we're implementing and till we're putting it out. And, and by that, um, you know, you're taking that first step that feels like an extension. In other words, you're in a bit of challenge, you're in a bit of friction, you're feeling uncomfortable. So now you're out of... You're out of your cone, your zone of comfort. It's in those moments to reflect inwards and ask, what is the blind spot here? What is happening? Because I can guarantee you that it's something within you that is holding you back from that expansion. And it's not real. <laughs> <laughs> and when you discover that, that you know, these... Like, don't get me wrong, we all have circumstances and we can argue for circumstances that prevent us from doing things. But then we hear these stories of people who just have overcome extraordinary life situations to do things. How? How did they? They had to push through their own limited belief around whether they could or they couldn't. And so, you know that so my recommendation is to do that reflection while you continue to move forward into that discomfort and I'm not talking about risk taking that would put you at you know at danger in danger or anything like that I'm just talking about um, doing the thing that feels a bit scary and um, and my encouragement to anyone listening is that I still feel that every day in my work because 
what potential is and extending into that and expanding into that is that you're always at that cusp of opportunity and challenge. Yeah. You're always you know it right too it's like once you've mastered something that felt scary and now you're doing it and then you're thinking to yourself how did I ever think that was unattainable absolutely you're already you've already opened the door into the next extension or expansion and you're wondering how am I going to do that I don't know how I don't have the time I don't have the money I don't have the help no of course you don't and you won't for any stage you're at if you're growing yeah so once we get that and understand that um, you know, it's just a matter of uncovering those blind spots at, at that point of um, friction and continuing to, you only do that by keeping going forward. So kind of stepping into the dark. Yeah, and it takes a lot of trust. Yeah. Trust is a really, really big... In big yourself? One. Trust in yourself and trust that you're okay, trusting that you're okay um, and that, you'll find the way and you'll get the help that you need and you don't know how but you know that if you keep going you're going to meet people you're going to find things you're going to uncover things you're going to upskill you're going you know what I mean and that's when we call it synchronicity yeah yeah absolutely exactly and yeah we don't of course from the place that we're looking at it like that vantage point of where we're at we can't see those things yet they're not there, they're not visible to us. So it, it takes that faith and trust to keep going forward that they are going to show up and that, that has also been my experience. But, you know, what, what's that saying? It's um, luck is for the unprepared. Oh, um, yeah, Oprah. Well, <laughs> Oprah says um, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. And it's kind of like, yeah, I totally get that. I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. I always think, though, for me, when I look at potential, I get excited by it in the way that I feel like the more your potential grows and the more you grow into it, the more you also then get invited into more interesting conversations. That's right. And yeah. that's kind and of And opportunities, how I, yeah. Yeah, that's how I always view it. And I think, oh, like, you know, if you're at that stage, then a new, cooler opportunity happens and... I just feel like the world keeps on kind of growing because that's why there are certain people at certain levels. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And there's that old, you know, RAS, reticular activating system in our brain that when we focus on something, you know, we start it. to see it. I yeah. mean, there's there's always that, that great opener, that icebreaker in the room of, you know, find all the things that are yellow Um, and then of course as soon as you weren't thinking about yellow but as soon as you focus on it now everything's yellow you know what I mean Um, you're like was that cream a bit yellow I think it was yeah so then our then our brain goes to work right yellow we're on to yellow we're on to yellow (laughs) you know what I mean Um, and that's you know that's that's what focus is so um, and I think rising above challenge so my lesson my realization, which most people have probably already come to, about this term "rise above," um, is, and I and I said it yesterday. If that thing hadn't have happened, that that thing that kind of almost took me out of the game or knocked me out, I never would have. If I wasn't able to rise above that, I never would have seen the next level or the vision. For me, the meaning of that term is when you get above something, it's not like get over it. When you get above it, 
your perspective changes. On how you see it. On how you see it, on the bigger picture, your vision gets clearer. When you're down in it, um, you're not seeing you're not seeing all the opportunity or all the other ways or all the other things. So, you know, that was that was my my lesson for this week. Ah, that's what rising above means. The yeah. view's much clearer here, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, the vision can be clearer now. Um, yeah. So get out of that sort of that the, the pettiness that we take ourselves into in a situation. And you know, it's all right, it's okay to spend a little bit of time on that stuff, mulling it over. But if we reside there, we can't see that that expansive potential, um, which of course is infinite. Uh, I can always spend hours talking to you. I love the way your brain thinks. But before I ask you my final question, where can everyone find you? Um, where can everyone find me? That's a good question. Well, um, put all your links up. Yeah, put all my links up. So www.artofagency.com is my umbrella business. Website needs a slight revamp. <laughs> who has time for that? Um, but yeah, that's that's that will that will find me. Perfect. Yeah. So my final question, you're standing in front of a room of 10,000 women. You're able to offer one piece of advice, although you've shared much throughout this conversation. On this note, what would you say? Do it now. Succinct. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Nat. It's been wonderful. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Modern Women. If this content is delivering value to you, it would be so helpful and appreciated if you head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher and rate and review us as that helps us build this incredible community. And ultimately, that is what this is all about, building this community as big as we can to help as many women as possible. And all of your ratings and reviews truly help with that. And before I go, a shout out to Chunky Love for the original music and to Mr. Darren Lake over at Podpace for helping me produce this show for all of you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.